Thank you all so much for praying with me, with each other. If you have a Bible, we're going to open up to 1 Corinthians 15 tonight. We're going to cover the first 11 verses of this chapter. We'll probably be in this chapter for the next three weeks, which will take us right to the threshold of Easter, which the subject of this chapter couldn't have asked for better timing, right? Uh, and, and God does that. Uh, and and I, I love when he shows up in these small ways. Not that this is a small thing, but I love when he shows up in these ways uh, because it lets us know, as we said a few weeks ago, that God is sovereign over his church. Uh, and I hope that encourages you. Um, we have come to a clean break in 1 Corinthians. Uh, and the, chapter 15 is really the beginning of the final big topic, the final big section of the book. So if you have been here for all of this, or even for some of it, we've covered a lot in 1 Corinthians and, and probably covered so much. We've already forgot the original, the early chapters, which is okay. Um, but uh, we've covered the subject of church unity, church division. Uh, we've covered the subject of the judgment before Christ, how we serve him now will matter when we stand before him later. Uh, we've covered uh, topics about sexual immorality, sexual identity, which were very relevant for our current age as they were for 2,000 years ago. Uh, we've covered um, uh, uh, all sorts of uh, important things about the church a as a unit, as a family, as a community. We, we talked for several weeks now about spiritual gifts, the importance of love and building up one another. In chapter 15, it's going to feature Paul pulling back a few thousand feet and not focusing on some, some of the more finer, specific subjects, but he's going to really talk about something that is really an overarching uh, subject for the church and, and, and a big uh, predominant theme for Christianity as he begins to wrap up this book. So it's going to kind of work out nicely. Uh, but he's going to talk about uh, what is the end game of all that we do. He's going to look forward to what is all of our destination and talk about how that should influence what we do as we serve the Lord. So kind of a way to summarize what we're going to be talking about is he's going to teach us how our destination should drive our devotion. Now, I think that's pretty self-explanatory, but the idea is that if we know where we're going when we die, we know where we're going when this age ends, well, that should influence and drive how we live each day, that we as Christians already know the end of the story. There's a lot of people living out their lives right now that they don't know what's going to happen whenever, that tomorrow it, or especially any eternity. Now, we might could say we know what's going to happen, but, but again, they don't think about it or they worry about it, right? There's a lot of people that are worried a great deal about what the world's going to look like for 10, 20 years from now because they don't have the confirmation that you and I have, right? And, and where that brings uncertainty on them, you and I have confidence that regardless of how things shake down on this side of things, we know where we're going when it all, you know, ends. Yeah, that doesn't make us careless about this current time, but it makes us all the more devoted. So our destination drives our devotion. Now, where he's going in chapter 15 is going to be around the subject of the resurrection. Not only the resurrection of Jesus, but our resurrection. Because you and I have a resurrection to look forward to just the same as Christ foreshadowed. Paul wants us to know that as we serve the Lord and as we serve his church and as we allow our faith to inform every aspect and area of our life, uh, we are driven to do this because we believe there's a payoff coming. So you and I take it very seriously every single day, the opportunity we get to serve God as a member of his church, as a member of, this, as a, of our society, as a civilian in, in this country. You and I take it very serious that we should incorporate our faith into every aspect of our life because we believe there's a payoff coming. We believe 
that it's going to be worth it in the end. So there are temptations to get frustrated. There are days where it gets heavy to carry the burdens that we have to carry in this life. But you and I keep our heads up. You and I keep our, 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 our eyes on Jesus because we know it's going to pay off one day. We know it's going to be worth it when we get to the end of the road. And that's really a core virtue of Christianity because as Christians... Our faith does not make us slack. Our faith does not make us careless. Our faith makes us even more diligent. And here's what I mean. When we get saved, we don't all of a sudden kick back and say, well, I'm just going to ride it out until the end. No, we get even more determined and even more driven and have an even greater diligence about our activities because we know God has given us a reason to live and God has given us a confidence for tomorrow. There's a whole lot that don't have that confidence. And since we do, we should make every day count for the Lord. Our salvation doesn't cause us to be you know, slack or careless. It makes us more and more diligent because God has promised you and I something that nothing, nobody can take away. He has promised he will raise us up to eternal life in the end. After we've lived our lives here on earth, God is going to raise us up, whether by raising up our body that's been buried or raising us up with the rapture. So that promise is based on something that Jesus has done. Not what we do, right? We, we don't have a bone in this, right? We are recipients of a great gift. So we realize the sacredness and the weight of the gift, and we are motivated to strive to the fullest. So we get up each and every day, and we have as much passion and as much dedication as possible because we are mindful of what God has done and how our lives can count for him. And if this isn't your attitude, I pray that you would adopt this attitude. And this chapter really is about convincing all of us to adopt this attitude. That as he's signing off on this book, Paul is going to help us look to the end of the story and make us mindful of how we're living now each page of the story. I, th I hope that makes sense. Uh, the resurrection directs us daily as well as it destines us for eternity. So we, we think about the resurrection and we think about the end of the story. But what Paul is going to teach us in this chapter is that the resurrection directs us daily. Yes, it destines us for eternity. Yes, it gives us confirmation of how it's going to end. But it should influence and drive us every single day of our lives. So we're going to get into that promise um, really in next week's message. But I wanted to kind of set the stage for you uh, of this whole chapter. Tonight, we're going to look at the opening of chapter 15 where Paul sort of recaps the core details of the Christian faith as he builds toward this resurrection topic, how you and I have received this great gift. So the reason for the recap we're going to find out is that he wants us to really lean into this resurrection message in our preaching, in our communicating, in our sharing the gospel. So by reminding us the gospel in its main and core points, we are that much more mindful of how fortunate we are to be in this position. So it's really all about um, framing our minds or influencing how we perceive each day and how we make goals for each day because the resurrection is totally the power of God. Uh, right, we, we're, we're pretty good with that. When Jesus was buried and he was dead in the ground, it was only the power of God that was going to bring him back to life. And the same thing for you and I in our future. Without the power of God, we have no future. 
no matter how good we are, how much we do in preparation, right? You know, there are doomsday preppers on this side of things that might last several nukes and all kind of, you know, fallouts of things on this side of things. But, but, but there's no way we can make ourselves uh, prepared for eternity. It's only God who does that work, and it's 100% his power. So we ought to be influenced by that and, and, and be motivated by that to live each day. So while next week the motivation will be about how we live, tonight's message is more about what our motivation is in our preaching and our witnessing and, and how we communicate the gospel as clearly as possible. And, and it should be on us. We should be very... Uh, very focused on being clear, uh, because if we aren't clear about what we believe, then how in the world can the people that don't believe uh, ever have a chance? So this comes nicely, and it fits um, really well, naturally, off of chapter 14, because what was Paul's focus in the last chapter? We, we, we talked about tongues, we talked about prophecy, but what was really the behind-the-scenes reason for that, for that subject? Paul was trying to help the Corinthians understand that their church services, their worship services, their gatherings as a community should be focused on edifying each other, edifying the body. That Paul says, hey, when y'all come together, be mindful of what you do in that service time. Be mindful of what you do in that community time because you have people in your hearing who don't know Jesus. And what you do in that hour, that hour and a half, or that several hours a week is going to make an impact on them. So be mindful of that. And you want to make sure you leave that impact or you leave the right impression on them with what matters which is the message of Jesus and how they are built up through that message. So the chapter really is a is key palate cleanser, I think, um, for anyone wondering what the basics of our faith are and what the bullet points of our message should be. So I think this is really good for us to study tonight. We've been in some weeds the last couple of weeks. We've been in the, the thickness of things with the tongues and the prophecy and the spiritual gifts, even going back to some of the other chapters before that. We've, really, we've had some deep conversations, which is good. Y'all can handle it. We can handle it. The Bible wants us to know those things. But tonight's going to be kind of a good palate cleanser where it's just going to kind of remind us of the basic points of our faith um, and what should be our basic message to the world. So if you've been kind of thinking, hey, I need, I need, I need something easy to digest, then tonight is the night for you. It, it, we're going to learn a lot. We're going to be challenged, I think, as well. Uh, but most of all, we're going to be reminded of, 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 of just how we are saved and, and why we should be clear with that about that to the world. So chapter 15, 1, 1 through 11, is really in a vacuum, a priceless precious, valuable piece of scripture. Because maybe you know, maybe you know this, maybe you didn't know this. Um, it gives us the first rehearsed and repeated church creed. Now, church creed may be something you're, you're familiar with if you, if you came up or you've been a part of more formal denominations in your past, uh, but creed is just a fancy Latin word for stated beliefs. So some churches, um, as a part of their services, um, recite creeds, you know, uh, pre-written confessions. Uh, you've heard of the Apostles' Creed. You've heard of the Nicene Creed. Uh, well, this creed doesn't have a fancy name, but it's the earliest confession from the early church era. So it's, it's believed that when the, in the early days, the church would come together and they would recite this as a group. Uh, they would recite this. Now, remember, they didn't have a Bible like we have. Uh, they, they had pieces of the Bible. They had copies of letters that were written, but they didn't have a Bible leather-bound from front to back like we do. They just had mostly oral traditions or oral sermons that had been repeated. They had what was written down in bullet point form. It was going to be 300 years before they had a Bible. 
right? So yes, there was the Old Testament, but it wasn't really circulated around the Roman world. But there was no New Testament other than what was being written. And what was being written wouldn't really be organized for several hundred years. So they were getting the Bible in piecemeal. So it was very important that they have something that was memorizable and something that was repeatable. So that's where this chapter comes from and comes in. And that's why when Paul says, hey, I've, I shared with y'all what was first shared with me, he's literally quoting something that we believe that they used to quote as a group or as a whole. And this was really all the Bible they had uh, in, in some way, shape, or form. And of course, they had fragments of this and that, but they didn't have it like we do. So whereas this might not be as necessary for us, it gives us a window into what it was like for them, which should make us even more appreciative of what we have. Um, so this, uh, th- this, this chapter that we're going to look at, um, we we're going to read, read this creed um, that was something they could recite and pass around. If somebody were to ask them the basic tenets of their faith, they would respond, well, this is what we often recite as a church. So that's kind of where we're, where we're looking at tonight or what we're looking at tonight. So the confession is going to start in verse 3, uh, and we're going to break that down line by line, but we're going to actually, again, obviously begin in verses 1 and 2 as Paul builds up to this creed. Um, and what he's going to do in these first couple of verses is remind them of the gospel, and he's going to then summarize the gospel with that confession that we just talked about. So uh, let's look at verse number one and verse number two. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in these verses because there's some really great stuff here for us to unpack. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. So notice he's going back and forth from present tense to past tense. He said, hey, y'all, I preached this when I visited y'all five years ago, but I'm going to remind you of it again, and y'all should be well aware of it or familiar with it because you are standing in the reality of the gospel, as in what has brought you to this point is what's going to carry you forward. Now, we're going to talk a lot about that idea in just a minute. He says in verse 2, by which also you are saved, and, and then he puts a qualifier on it, If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he says, I'm going to share the gospel with you again, which is the same message I shared with you a few years ago. This is what saved you and what's going to continue to save you and what's going to keep you saved. Now we're going to get into the last part of verse 2 in a minute, but I want to focus on what he's saying here because he's reminding them of something very core to what we believe as Christians. The gospel that saves you is the only thing that's keeping you saved. That may sound a little bit redundant. Well, of course, if it saved you, it's keeping you saved, but you'd be surprised at what some people believe. Here's what it means. Jesus in the gospel aren't some mere initiation process that passes you along to something else or that hands you off to some other set of rules. And it's not just a, an experience that is some sort of temporary thing that, you, that, you, that doesn't influence you in the future. No, when you get saved is the beginning of a lifelong experience, a lifelong relationship. And if that's not what you believe Christianity to be, then you don't understand what Christianity is. You hear that? That when you become a Christian, you are beginning something that never ends. And if you see Christianity as anything anything but that, then it's unfortunate that you may have been misled. 
So here's what he's going to say to us. The gospel saves us and the gospel sustains us. Saves us and sustains us. Don't ever forget, we never outgrow and we never outpace gospel dependency. As in, we better stay at that place of surrender before Jesus and dependence on Jesus. Paul is concerned that some of the Corinthians haven't stayed at that place. And I share that concern because I believe a lot of professing Christians, a lot of people who are in church, especially people who aren't in church, but they profess Jesus. There's a lot of people who at some point in their life profess Jesus, and if you ask them, do you believe in Jesus, they would say, yes, of course, and they would say, I I had this, I did this, I've been there. But a lot of people who profess Jesus, they don't live in this reality of gospel dependency, and they aren't leaning on the gospel to sustain them as they first believed it to save them. We better stay at that place. Now, here's what he's trying to save us from. There's two potential dangers that Paul is concerned about, and you and I are not out of the, out of the, 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 the realm of, of falling down these, these dangerous pathways. Two things he's worried about, that we might shift our weight back on what we do to be righteous and that we might lean away from Jesus as if we no longer need help. These are the two things he is very concerned about, and these are the two risks that all of us must be aware of, that every one of us as a Christian, from the point that we get saved, we've got to be aware that at some point in the future, we may be tempted to shift our weight back on what we do for our righteous standing, and we may be tempted to lean away from Jesus as if we no longer need the help that we want once asked for. These are two mistakes that every Christian has made at some point in their life. Some make both, some make at least one, or we at least make one of these at some point in our walk with God. So I want to cover the first one, that we shift our way onto or back onto what we do for righteousness. Religion teaches us to feel justified by what we do, by what we bring to the table. And, and, and even if you're not a religious person, a lot of us, we, if you ask somebody who's not a Christian or you ask somebody who, uh, who maybe they have some you know, mishmash of beliefs, a lot of people would say to you, well, I believe I'm right with God because I'm a good person. I believe I'm right with God because I, I, te- I keep the Ten Commandments or I keep most of them, right? I, I keep some commandments. You ask people, hey, are you, a good, are, are you saved or are you right with God? And they would say something like, well, yeah, I think I'm a good person. And they, would all, they often all do this thing where they will be quick to make you aware that there's a lot of people who aren't nearly as good as them. So yeah, they're not perfect, but if you looked around at the rest of the world... It's our nature to justify ourselves. And a lot of people, even Christians do this, who claim that Jesus saved them, somehow fall back into this place where they think, well, I, yeah, I got saved, but it's important that I do these things because I'm better than these other people because, hey, I know Jesus is what saved us, but you know what? I give a certain amount and I attend a certain amount and I do a certain thing. So somehow I think I'm a little bit better off than these other people. And that's a dangerous drift that we often flirt with, where we begin to move our weight off of Jesus back onto our own feet. Many get saved, but then they start living by their works, feeling justified by what they do, what they give, how they serve. 
and, and we compare ourselves to others. That's usually what starts it. We compare ourselves to others and we want to feel good about ourselves. Listen, and, and I love you. I want everybody to feel good. I, I think God wants you to feel good, but I, I just want you to, to, to listen to me. And, and I'm trying to be as nice as I can about this. But it's the devil that wants you to feel good about yourself when it comes between you and God. Because the devil knows if he can get you thinking about, hey, what have I done? And what have I brought to the table? Then he gets you taking your eyes off of Jesus and he gets you looking in the mirror and that becomes a game of religion. Let me just encourage you to do something and it might not make you feel good, but it's gonna lead you to a good place. The only person you should ever compare yourself to is Jesus because when you compare yourself to Jesus, you realize you are undone and incomplete and you will run to him and trust only in him. You hear me? If you, if you want to compare yourself to somebody, compare yourself to Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus taught us to do? Who has the first, who is without sin, cast the first stone, and they all walked away. Now, they shouldn't have walked away. They should have bowed to him, right? So you want to compare yourself to somebody? Compare yourself to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't condemn you. He says, I will save you if you will confess that you need me. Listen, us churchy types, we allow Jesus to be hijacked by religion. There's nothing more tragic and sad than that. We need to remember that Jesus saved us and we need him to sustain us. Let us not take our weight off of him back onto ourselves because that's just going to set us up for some sort of failure. Romans eleven six 6 says, it, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Pretty self-explanatory, right? So if we're saved by grace, then there's no works that contribute to it. There's no works to take away from it either. Now, should you do certain things because of Jesus? Of course. But don't fall for it. Don't take the bait and lean and, and, and trust in what you do. Because that just takes your eyes off of Jesus and it takes the weight off of Jesus. We stand because grace is propping us up. That's what he says at the end of verse one, in which you stand. Why are they saved? Not because of what they do, because of what Jesus has done and how he's propping them up. Now, the other side of things. Some of us, we come to Jesus in a moment of fear or desperation. That, and usually it's like this, that we are in some trouble or we feel like we're going to have some trouble, and it could be personal, it could be bigger than that. But we come to Jesus because we feel like the consequences of our sin are going to catch up to us. And there's fear and anxiety, and we come to Jesus because we want him to bail us out. Now, maybe this isn't your experience, but you know someone like this, don't you? They came to Jesus, and they wanted to get saved, or they wanted to follow him because they wanted him to make them feel better about this sin they committed or this problem in their life. But then, after a few weeks go by or a few months go by, when they're no longer worried about that sin or they feel like they've gotten away with it, what happens? They walk away from Jesus because they didn't look to Jesus to save them. They just looked to Jesus to bail them out of some trouble they were in. Now, listen, we've all done that, but that is not salvation. And that's what Paul is warning us on the other side here. Jesus is not a band-aid. He's not a temporary bailout until the coast clears. Jesus is a hospital. Jesus is, is a whole total rehabilitation. You don't use Jesus as a crutch until you get better. You never get better. That's the point, right? Our confession is that we can't and only he can. Maybe we walk away from that altar, that encounter with Jesus that we don't think we need him anymore for whatever reason. It's kind of like, 
when you get sick and you take the medicine for a few days and then you think you're better because you feel better, but the antibiotic was supposed to be taken for a whole week or maybe 10 days, but you took it for three, four days and you're better, so you just put it in the closet, you throw it away. Yet the prescription was the duration it was for a reason because it, you need that total dose to get better. And if you don't take the whole dose, you're probably going to have other complications in the long run. Let me break it down again as nicely as I can. We are never going to overcome our sin and flesh apart from Jesus' help. If we lean away from Jesus, supposing that we don't need him anymore, we fall into a far worse place than we were before we ever met him. So here's the summary of this. If we don't need and rely on Jesus today as much as we did when we first cried out, we need to check our hearts. That if you don't need Jesus as much as you felt like you needed him at that altar a long time ago, if you don't rely on Jesus as much as you did in the height of your Christian faith, the season of your life where you were as on fire as can be, if you don't need him and rely on him and aren't as devoted to him today as you were, and listen, I know we all have ups and downs. I know we all go through hills and valleys, and some days we're hot, some days we're cold, but that's, this is a message for us every single day. If we are not relying on Jesus as much as we were that day we cried out, to him most of all we need to check our hearts because we didn't get better from that day we need Jesus as much today as we did then Jesus sustains us but let us not walk away from him thinking that we don't need him anymore a lot of people know a version of Jesus that church or religion has falsely advertised again these two these two versions of Jesus that are not really Jesus the Jesus that helps you up, but then lays the burden of righteousness on you. A lot of churches promote this kind of Jesus. Well, come on, Jesus will help you get up, but then it's on you to make sure you better live up to these certain standards. And if you don't live up to these standards, then hey, you're not really saved. That's not Christianity. Christianity is you come to Jesus and you stay with Jesus. And if you stay with him, you'll be on the right road forever and ever. There's a Jesus that people believe that bails you out, but then you can walk away when you don't feel like you need him anymore. Let me make it very clear. Neither of these are the real Jesus. Neither. The real Jesus makes it clear that we are sinners. We need his grace to save us and sustain us. We don't outpace him. We don't outgrow him. He is not a band-aid. He is not a temporary relief for our conscience. He is our savior. And saviors do all the saving. And if we need a savior today, we need a savior tomorrow. We need him at all times as much as we ever do, as ever have. We are always in need of his saving grace to hold us up and lead us forward. I hope that makes sense. Because I feel like a lot of times Christianity gets compartmentalized into these different categories. Where, oh, it's a, you better straighten up and Jesus will help you get up, but then it's on you to carry the rest of the way. Or, oh, you need somebody to bail you out? Well, Jesus will bail you out. Come on down. But then they just walk away and we never see him again. Listen, I'm never going to preach Christianity as, as, as some band-aid because that's not what it is. And we should never preach Christianity as some sort of door that you walk through. Jesus is not just the door. He's the house, right? That we live in and dwell in. And, and Paul must be very concerned about this because look at what he says in verse 2. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There's a lot of people who, who uh, they are who think they're helping Jesus out, um, who are getting some credit for their salvation. Listen, Paul says that leads, people, that leads you to hell. 
If you think Jesus is just a step into a relationship with God that it in its own you, then don't fall for that. Don't fall for that religious. And there's a lot of people caught up in that. A lot of people stuck in that. And people feel good about it because it makes them feel full of pride and feel good about themselves. But ultimately, they'll fall short of God's glory if they go down that road. Likewise, there are those people who think Jesus is some temporary fix until they get out of hot water with someone in their life or some situation in their life, and they insult him by asking him to help them, but then they walk away as soon as they feel better. If that describes your idea of salvation, then we've got it totally wrong. And Paul says, if that's how we understand salvation, we have believed in vain. Now, I don't want to get to us pointing the finger, but because I think everybody here tonight, you, you know that Jesus saves you and that he sustains you. You aren't trying to work your way in. You aren't trying to keep your, yourself in because you know that God brought you in and God keeps you in. And, and you also aren't here for some sort of brief season. You're here forever. But we know some people, right? We know some people that if you ask them, hey, are you saved? They would say, yeah, I'm a good person or I do good things and I give good things. We know people that if, that if that you ask them, are you saved? Um, th- th- they, they might say, yeah, I know Jesus, but the only time they ever go to Jesus is whenever things are a little bit rough for them. We know people like that, don't we? And we need to be very transparent with the gospel towards those people because that's not salvation. And we don't need to apologize for people who don't believe in the real Jesus, who have made up a version of Jesus that fits their idea from religious, uh, their religious views or to some other views. In church, we want to make it clear that we are not here to help Jesus out. And we are not here because we want Jesus to bail us out. We are here because we need Jesus to save us and sustain us. We are completely lost without him. This is why this verse in Revelation is so convicting. Revelation 2 verse 4, he says to the church at Ephesus, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. They walked away from him. They didn't lose. They they didn't lose it. They didn't lose. God didn't lose them. They didn't lose God. They left him. They walked away from him. They shifted their way onto something else, some religious work, something besides Jesus. So it all comes down to this. Are we trusting? Are you trusting in Jesus and his saving grace? Are you living by and living off of his saving grace? If you cannot answer that question succinctly and clearly, then maybe you need to rethink your salvation. And that should be the question we ask other people. If, they, if people can't answer this question, I'm trusting in Jesus. I'm living off of his grace. I'm, I'm living by his grace. If that answer is hard to get out, then, that, 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 then there's a probably a problem. If, you are, if, if, if we aren't comparing ourselves to others, if we're getting jealous, uh, if we are comparing ourselves and getting jealous and uh, at some who do less or do different than us, if we're worried about them because we're focused on our own sin or focused on their sin more than ourselves, then and again, that, that shows that we're not leaning on Jesus. We're leaning on our own justification. If we are trusting in Jesus and living by his grace, we don't ever wake up one morning and think we don't need him. We don't ever wake up one morning and think, well, nobody's watching me today. I'm not in trouble today. Or, you know, this sin, nobody knows about it, so I don't really need to be close to God because, hey, nobody's watching. Then then that's not a relationship with God. That's just using God to, to feel better some days when you need it. So if you're worried if verse two means that you can lose your salvation or not, it's trying to get us to see that, to see if we've ever been saved at all. Verse 2 is not saying that people have fallen away from God. It's questioning whether or not they ever believed in Jesus. So when, when we consider the question, am I saved? Let me put it this way. When I consider the question, am I saved? 
I am reminded of that time I first believed, yes. I am encouraged by that moment in time that I have been different ever since. But if all I have regarding my salvation is a memory from the past, that's not salvation. That's some religious experience. Salvation is not just a memory. Salvation is a constant, ever-current possession, a reality we walk in at all times from that moment in time forward. Now, we already know the gospel is the work that Jesus has done, but verse 3 and 4 gives us a really basic summary of what the gospel is. Let's look at those. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. He prefaces that description of the gospel by saying, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. So then he's going to begin to recite the creed that we also just read. So Paul tells the Corinthians, and when he says, first of all, he doesn't, he doesn't mean sequence. He means importance. So when he says, I delivered to you, first of all, he's saying, hey, y'all, I came to y'all, and I told y'all what the main thing was. I told y'all what the big idea was. I told y'all what the non-negotiable banner over us was. And if the main thing was that in 43 AD when he went to see them, then that means it's still the main thing in 48 AD when he's writing this. And that means it's still the main thing in 2023 AD when we're reading this. The Corinthians had been, all, had been in all sorts of drama trying to decide what was the most important thing as they were tr- conducting their church. But Paul reminds them, the main thing is keeping the gospel of Jesus Christ front and center, first and primary in all that we promote and engage in. I think there's something worth talking about here by mentioning the main things. It's acknowledging that sometimes other things compete for first place in the church. Think about all the things that we can get up in arms about. Think about all the things that we can put at the top of our list. There's what you and I individually want to prioritize. There's what we as a group want to prioritize when we all kind of hash it out and and, and fight for what's most important. And then there's what God says we should prioritize. And hopefully we're all on the same page, but that's not always the reality. If you ask any person, any group, any church, some will say the church should focus on any sort of things. Some will say the main focus of the church should be upholding traditions. The main agenda should be do what we always have done, even if you don't know why you've done what you've done. Some might say, well, we need to uh, save money. We need to prioritize, uh, uh, you know, they, they see the church as an extension of their own finances, an extension of their own property. Some might say that the church is all about religious traditions, personal interests. Some might say it's about fighting a culture war. It's about making sure that we go to the world and fight uh, for what we want to be ours. Some might say there's a political agenda we should promote. But none of these things should ever and can ever take the place of the gospel, and so many do if we're not careful. This isn't a problem that we have or that you have, but this is a problem that the church at large struggles with. Does Christianity involve or lend itself to certain traditions? Yes, nothing wrong with that. Are personal agendas contrary to the church's mission at all times? Not at all. Does Christianity lend itself to engaging in and fighting certain cultural battles? Yes, and sometimes it's necessary. 
Does it lend itself toward certain political beliefs? Yes. Some are clearly in line with the Bible more than others. But Paul says this, before you engage in or prioritize any of those, remember what the main thing is. And make sure before you go down that road, it doesn't hinder your ability to preach the gospel to as many people as possible. So what is the main thing? He says what the main thing is. Remember what I taught you, what, you, what I first received. That Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose again. The main thing is the death and resurrection of Jesus, which makes salvation possible for everyone. Let's remember why we're here. Now, I tell people all the time, and maybe I don't say it enough. You can be you and do what you want and believe in what you want and promote what you want and your own life all you want. But when we come together as a church, it's imperative that we all agree that the main thing, the most important thing, the reason we're here and the reason we meet and the reason we rally, what we are here for is to promote and preach the gospel of Jesus more than anything else. And we've got to come to an agreement about what we should do to get this message out to as many people as possible. What should stay and what should go. What we bring in and what we shouldn't bring in. What we talk about, what we never talk about. So the last word on these competitive agendas is we cannot let any agenda divert, hinder, frustrate the reach of our message. Here's, here's my motto. You may agree, you may disagree. I believe the church must stay clean and pure from personal or worldly agendas and affairs so that the gospel can reach every person from all the world. I think that's a pretty good motto to have. Does that mean we back away from saying what's right? No. Does that mean we don't, we don't stand up for what's true? No. But that means we always are front and center with the gospel. Jesus died for sin. What sin? We'll make sure people know about it, what, what sin is. But we make it very clear. Jesus died for your sin. And we never make anybody feel like their sin was left off the cross. As if their sin wasn't atoned for because Jesus died for all sin. He loves every sinner. So we don't want anybody to think that they weren't interceded for. We want to make sure they know that their sin put him there, right? But we don't want to make anybody think their sin wasn't paid for, right? That, that means that sometimes we have to realize, we have to listen to ourselves talk, listen to ourselves engage. Because it's easy if we let personal agendas, we let cultural agendas, political agendas, it's easy to let those things muzzle us with, from our gospel message. Here's really my main agenda, is I don't ever want to waste any potential hearer's time with any other message than that which can save them. My agenda every single week, and, and sometimes I do it from a backdoor approach, but my agenda every single week is to make you aware that you need Jesus, that you have a need in your life that cannot be met by anybody but Jesus, that every one of us have something in common. We are flawed, imperfect, sinful creatures, and we need Jesus to speak to that part of our life and open our eyes and save us. That's my agenda. That's my goal in everything that I preach and everything that I do. And I think as a church, that should be our agenda. But we should never waste people's time. That's why you don't hear me talk politics. You don't hear me talk about culture and about all the things in the world. And I don't pull my hair out over those things because I know that's not what we're here for. You can be engaged in those things all you want. But again, when we come together as a church, 
What are we here for? To promote the gospel of Jesus because there's a world that needs to be saved. We aren't here to make people like us, think like us, look like us. We are here not to make the world like we want it to be. We're here to be like what God wants us to be. We are passing through this fading world. Our goal is to see people saved by Jesus. We cannot afford to let anything else get in the way. And, and that, those verses, verse 3 and 4, remind us and nudge us what should direct us. What does it say, verse 3 and 4? According to the Scripture. So what is Paul grounding the gospel in from the very beginning? According to the Scriptures, as prophesied by the old, but as written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the new. That wasn't even together yet, but he knew it was going to be. So we don't take cues from our own hearts. We don't take cues or we don't listen to culture or the world. We listen to the Bible. And you'd be surprised at how much what a lot of people believe and what a lot of people listen to isn't biblical. And you'd be shocked to find out how much Bible we actually ignore, which is why I want us and why my goal as a pastor is to walk us through the entire book front to back. And it's why whenever we sit in our small groups, you might think, man, he is really giving us a lot of Bible because I want you to know it is all important. And I don't want anybody to walk out of here thinking, thinking, well, he just made all that up. No, it, I want us to know the Bible is the basis for what we do. God's word is the, is what drives us and informs us. I don't take my cues from somebody else. And if what I believe, sometimes what I believe as, a, as an American, as, as a man, as a part of the world, sometimes that conflicts with what I believe as a Christian. And as a Christian, I've got to look at myself in the mirror and say the Bible gets first place. You'd be surprised at sometimes how we ignore what the Bible says we should or what we shouldn't do or what we shouldn't believe. Now, from verse 5 through 7, Paul just recaps the people that Jesus revealed himself to. He, he says in verse 5, he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So this is 48 AD. Some had died. Some were still alive. After that, he was seen by James, the brother of Jesus, then by all the apostles. And, and then he, he closes out this confession like this. And last of all, he was seen by me as one born out of due season. For I'm the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Last of all, least of all, he appeared to me. And I think this is meant to be our own confession. Paul is a cipher that we read and confess this through. Last of all, least of all, he appeared to us. How fortunate are we to get written into a story that should have never reached us, whose light should have never shined our way. But here we are. And how do we get here? Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me or with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so that we preach and so you believed. I love Paul's confession here. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I made sure I let the grace of God change me, and I worked as hard as I could because of God's grace, but I realized it wasn't me working, it was God's grace working. Here's Paul going back to what he talked about earlier to us. Paul's saying, hey, I didn't all of a sudden start believing in myself, and I also didn't just come to Jesus for a quick, and, a quick fix and then leave. When I came to Jesus, I received grace that has sustained me and that has kept its job, 
continued its job to save me and transform me and keep me where I need to be. This confession has reminded us that it's all about Jesus. It's his name, it's his work, it's his message. We must never forget that the grace of God has made us who we are in Christ, keeps us going for him, and keeps us grounded in him. We are who we are by the grace of God. The grace of God which is in us is what moves us forward. Church, our place here tonight was made possible exclusively by the work of Jesus. We didn't add anything. We didn't do anything. We simply believed and received from God this amazing gift. I know it's hard to think about this sometimes because we, as we have been transformed, we have developed the right beliefs and the right behaviors and we have changed and that's good, we should. But those things didn't get us here and those things don't keep us here. God, by his grace has saved us. So when people say, what does it mean to be a Christian? We don't look at them and say, hey, look at me. We look at them and say, look at Jesus. And if he saved us, he can save you. May we never present a gospel that makes people think that they don't have a chance. Because if we do, anybody does. Listen, the apostle Paul said, least of all, Paul, you, you, you built the church, Paul. You're the greatest evangelist that ever lived. He says, whoa, 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 don't think about, don't think me uh, to be somebody great. I am here by the skin of my teeth, by the grace of God. And thankfully, that's all it takes. That's all it takes. And look at what grace did to Paul. Isn't it amazing? So I want you to think about the gift that you have in your hands tonight in your heart. Is the resurrection of Jesus, is the gospel impacting who you are and what you do each day? Do you know how sacred it is, the gift that you've been given? And are you allowing the grace of God, the resurrection of Jesus to influence who you are and what you think and what you do? And as you communicate that to the world, do you present a gospel to people that makes it, that, that they see a place for them alongside of you? The resurrection should impact who we are, what we do. His resurrection brings us grace, and it's his grace alone that saves us. So if you get anything out of this tonight, it's that grace is good and that grace is the only saving chance we have. And since God's grace has been given out, all of us have been given a place. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for, for making us who we are by grace, for keeping us who we are through grace, and for grounding us by grace. Lord, let us never suspe suspect that we don't need you anymore. Let us never imagine that we've done, it, we've done something on our own to earn our place. It's by the grace of God we are who we are, and it's by the grace of God we can do what we do. So, Lord, let us communicate that to the world, that there is a God who loves them and there is grace that can save them, and that nobody is without reach of God's salvation. And as a church, let us promote that message that Jesus died for the sins of the world, and he rose again, meaning that nobody's sin was big enough to keep Jesus in the ground. He overcame it all. And that means there's hope for all. So let us as a church preach this gospel of grace. And more importantly, let us 
model a life of grace, amazing grace. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.